Well, good morning, good morning. Great to see all of y'all here today. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of John. So we continue through our series, Believe and Live, through the Gospel of John. And we're in chapter 12 now, which has been a fun run so far, about 24 weeks. We've been in the Gospel of John, and we're just going to continue to go through it. And let me just say, if you are a guest here with us today, we're thrilled to have you here today. And at the same time, we hope that you realize already, and if not, before the end of the service, you'll see how deep a love we have for Christ and we have for His Word. And each Sunday we gather together not to sit over God's Word, but to sit under it and allow it to shape us and form us into His image. So that's what we're going to do today. And it is a joy um, for my heart and my life to be able to open up God's beautiful Word to us each and every week. So John chapter 12. But before we dive in, let me just say how excited I am for fall kickoff starting today as kids move up to their new classes, as student ministry starts back tonight, small groups start this week. It's just been uh, exciting to see everything getting rolling again. And, and I know it's tight, it's crowded, it's packed in here, but uh, we're family, right? So we can get close. And if you're like, we're, we're family, but I don't, I don't know who this person is sitting to the right of me. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we do days like this. For you to meet one another and see one another, even though we have different services, you can see different people that are a part of the church. And then after service today, if you haven't heard, we've got free ice cream that's going to be out here in the parking lot. Yeah, we've got to cheer for that, right? Not small groups, but that's okay. Ice cream. Yeah. Um, and just encourage you, that's not just for kids, but those are for, for those that are kids at heart as well. So that's for everybody, uh, for you. And I would just really challenge you, invite you to try to meet somebody else at our church family that you haven't seen. Um, God and his Grace and His mercy has allowed us to really continue to grow and to flourish. And so what that means is there's a lot of new people and a lot of new faces. And if you've been here 15 years or you've been here 15 weeks, just really invite you to lean into this moment instead of pull back and get to know one another for the glory of Jesus Christ. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll open up John chapter 12. Father God, I pray this morning praising you for this church family of Wescobaris. God, I ask today that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use this this passage to address our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would help us to truly understand these things so that we would love the things that we need to love and that we would despise the things that we should despise. Lord, we ask this in your great and holy name. Now let me invite you in this moment to pray something similar to God that he would stir your heart, that he would speak to you through his word this morning. In this moment of silence, pray to him now. And pray for me as we look at this um, extremely important moment in the life of Christ. Uh, As it starts the last week of his life, Ask God that he would speak through me as we look at this beautiful moment in the life of Christ right now. Pray for me. Lord, we confess again as we continue to go through this gospel of John that these words were written so that we would believe that you are the Christ and that in believing we would have life in your name. So, Lord, help us to believe today and find life in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, John chapter 12, we'll start actually in verse 12, and we'll go through verse 26. It says this, 
The next day, all right, just first few words in, let me pause. If you missed last week or if you missed the last couple weeks or if this is your first week here, the next day, that's after Jesus has uh, raised the man Lazarus from the dead and then they come and they have this big party and a celebration with Lazarus and his family and in that moment, there's uh, this woman who comes to the feet of Christ and pours out a year's worth of wages, a year's worth of wages at the feet of Jesus through this perfume to praise and honor him. That's what's just happened the day before. And then it says here, the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches of palm, of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it for it is written, fear not, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, the timing of it, it says the next day, and we know what happened the day before because John has just told us, but this is also giving us the setting. This is the, the, the feast of Passover, and there is a large crowd. There are a lot of people that are here at this moment, and they see Jesus riding in on a donkey, and they're praising him, and they're crying out to him, and, and we'll unpack those different things of what they said and what they did here in a second, but just have that in your mind. This is a crowded scene. This is slammed full of people. And what's fascinating is John, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, has taken 11 chapters to talk about the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And here he starts to slow down. And from here to the end of the book, it's going to be the last week of Jesus' life. Now let that settle in because what's happening here is extremely important. If John's going to take 11 chapters to explain three years and then take another 10 chapters to explain one week, our ears should be attentive to this. But many of us feel like the disciples here in verse 16. Check it out. It says this, his disciples did not understand these things at first. So if you're confused by this, you're in great company. Neither did the disciples, right? But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him. And had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was because they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see? You see that they're gaining nothing. Look, the world, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to Worship at the feast were some of the Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. 
Now, in this passage right here, what you see is a love-hate relationship in two fashions. A love-hate relationship, okay? And the first fashion that you see it in is in the fashion of the king. You find a king in this passion who is both loved and hated. Who's loved and hated. We see that king is King Jesus. Now, you see the people who love Jesus right here at the very beginning because they're, they're praising him. They come out and they, they take palm branches, which is a national symbol for Israel, and they are laying them down and waving them, praising the king who is coming in to the city. The Gospel of Matthew talks about the story as well in chapter 21, and it says they weren't even just tearing off palm branches and laying palm branches down. They were taking off their coats and their jackets, and they were laying it down on the ground for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Now, why in the world are they doing all this? Because this is a picture of what a king would do as he would ride into the city. So when they see this king coming in, they want to worship and praise him, and they cry out to him, and it's interesting what they say. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, this that they're quoting right here, this that they're kind of singing and proclaiming in this moment is actually a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 118, and I want you to be able to see it. It's on the screen. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And it says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Bless us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in this moment, as they see this man who is not just healed himself, right? Not just that gave somebody some medicine, but one who had raised the man from the dead, who had raised Lazarus. That word is starting to spread like wildfire throughout the city, and they hear that this man has power and might and authority over all things. And as he rides into the city, they're like, man, we need a savior. And so they cry out, Hosanna, save now, is what they're saying. Now, when you look at Psalm 118, you don't see the word Hosanna because What that word literally means is save us or save now. So that's a word that we've translated that they're crying out right here. It's a word at that time that they would use if they were, if you were in a boat or cargo ship and you fell off overboard, you would cry out and say, Hosanna, save me. That's what you would do. Or if you were in trouble and somebody's trying to kidnap you or take you away, the words that those people would cry out in that moment to, to get rescue was Hosanna. That's what they would say at this time. And here they see this man, gentle and lowly, and yet they know that he has all authority and power, and in that moment they're like, save us, save us, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they realize that there's a problem, and they need a Savior, they need a Savior, Many of us feel the weight of what's going on in our heart and in our life, and we realize we need a Savior. Some of us look around at our culture and in our world, and we're like, we need a Savior. We need Christ. We need Him to come and save now. He's the solution. He's the solution. And in this moment, as they shout this praise to Christ, and as they do this act... They're declaring that he's king. 
the laying down of palm branches and jackets on the street, the, the shout of proclamation of Hosanna, the quote of Psalm 118 is all pointing to the king, and then they even say it with their lips, even the king of Israel. They're crying out that Jesus is king. You see, when we read the story, we might not see that, or we might not grasp that, but we have to. In order to truly understand this passage, we have to understand the kingship, the lordship of Jesus Christ in this moment. That's what's happening, and they realize it. If you don't realize it by their actions, then we should realize it by their words as they say, this is the king of Israel. Now, why this is different and a big deal in the Gospel of John is because there's been multiple times in the Gospel of John that people have looked at these signs that Jesus have done, and they say, man, this guy's the king. I mean, if you remember back in John chapter 6, when there's a bunch of hungry people that are out there, and they don't have any food, and Jesus is like, hey, we're going to feed them. And so these people eat. They, they, he feeds close to 15,000 people, they say. And, and, and then when they're done eating, they're like, man, this guy can perform this miracle, this sign that he can provide food for everybody that's here. He's got to be the king. And so they start to get like this rally group together and they're like, okay, let's, let's, let's take Jesus, let's ride into the city, let's make this guy our king. Y'all remember that in John chapter 6? But Jesus, what happens? He slips away. He's like, nope, it's not my time. It's not my time. And at time and time again, before this moment, that's what happens. People come and they're like, oh my goodness, this guy's amazing. He's almighty. He's doing all these things that we know we need. We got to make him king. And then he's like, nope, my time's not come. But this time, people are there in the city and they're crying out and they're praising him and they're saying, save us. And they look at him and they're like, you're the king. And this time Jesus doesn't pull back. He leans into the moment. He leans into the moment to embrace this role as king. The way he does it is through his action, by finding this donkey and riding on it. And it's, it's humorous, though, that he would choose a donkey of all things to, to ride on into the city, right? I mean, it's most of the times as a king would ride into a city, he would have this beautiful horse, the stallion that he would get on and he would ride and everybody would know that this guy's a leader. This guy has authority and power. And history tells us that right about this time, this week, that Pontius Pilate, the leader from Rome in this city, also rode in to the city. And history tells us that he rode in with soldiers and swords and crowds and people and they all would sing praises to him. They would all praise him because he was a leader in the Roman army, right? And then we have a picture here of Jesus humbly, meekly riding in a donkey. Riding on a donkey into the city, right? Now the thing that's interesting about that is Pontius Pilate, this Roman leader, rides in with all this pomp and circumstance, with all these soldiers and all these swords, and yet he's the one that is later just a footnote in history. Pontius Pilate, who had all this wealth and all this authority and all this power at that time, now the only reason we know who this guy is is because he's in the pages of Scripture. Christ, being the real king, comes in humbly to give his life for us, and he's the one that we remember. He's the one that people are praising and worshiping even today as we sing. 
He's the one that people are crying out to, Hosanna, would you save us? So we would look at this time and be like, man, that, that soldier marching in and all these different swords that we're seeing, all these different people for Pontius Pilate, he must be the real one in power. And what we find is Jesus has all power and all authority, and yet he humbles himself to ride a donkey into the city. And what this is showing us is that our God, the God of Christianity, is one who is all-powerful and king, absolutely. But he is meek and mild and lowly as he comes in. Why? To seek and to save those who were lost. To save now. That's what he's doing in this moment. He's, he's showing that he's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Because this quote in verse 15, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's from the, the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 gives us this prophecy, gives us this picture that our God was going to humble himself and come in this way. And now Jesus is riding in as the king, the humble king. Now, as I'm reading this this week, honestly, there's, there's a lot of different applications that we can look at in this text. But as I'm looking at it, part of my application is like, I just want to be more like this donkey, right? I mean, I just want to lift up the king. It's not about the donkey in this story. It's ultimately not. It's about the king coming humbly. And yet the donkey is lifting him up for other people to see him as he walks into the city. And I'm thinking about this. I'm like, this is like, this is like the gospel of Shrek, right? Where like the movie's about Shrek and it's all about Shrek. But there's a character in the movie, Donkey, right? And everybody kind of loves Donkey, sweet little Donkey. He's funny. But it's not about him. Donkey all throughout the movie is like lifting up Shrek and helping Shrek succeed and helping him come back. Oh, that we would just be humble in that way, not to lift ourselves up or to make much of ourselves, but that we would humbly lift the king, that others would see him, and others would praise him, and others would worship him. You see, do you see in these first few verses some people who are leaning in to praise and worship the king? But then you see some people that in this moment, they're confused by this moment, I mentioned it when we were reading, but the disciples, they don't even understand what's going on. They know that, okay, he's a king, he's coming in, but they don't understand to the, the fullness of what's happening in this moment. You see, because some of these people that are saying, come and save now, they're thinking, we need somebody to come in and be a political leader. Would you come in and overthrow Rome and save us now? Some of the disciples thought that, but later when they realized that Jesus came not to defeat their earthly enemy of Rome, he came to defeat enemies, yes, and our greatest enemies he rode into defeat. But his greatest enemies aren't flesh and blood. His greatest enemy was sin and death and the grave. And Jesus comes in to defeat that. That's the, the enemy that he's riding into defeat. And so they look and they're like, wait a second, I thought you were going to come in and be this political leader. That you're going to come in and you're going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus is like, no. There's a much, much greater enemy that you have. I have. It's this enemy of sin that brings condemnation on us. It's this enemy of death that leads us from dust to dust and decay. And Jesus is like, that's the enemy that I came to defeat. You see, some of us think if we could just, you know, we, if we could just get the right person in political office, then everything will be fixed. But as we read the pages of Scripture, our hope does not rest in a blue donkey or in a red elephant, but in the slain lamb. 
That's the one that we have our hope in, the king who has all authority and all power, right? He can raise a man, Lazarus, from the dead. He's going to go give his life for us so that we can be raised from the dead. And this group, though they might not fully understand, the disciples love Christ. They love the king. But there's another group that hates the king. They're called Pharisees in this passage. Sometimes they were the crowd, sometimes they were followers, but you see the Pharisees in verse 19. You see, they see all this happening, and they know that this is a moment that's declaring, man, this guy should be our king. And the crowd, this large crowd is saying, this guy should be our king. And these guys are terrified. They're like, this following keeps getting bigger? Then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to push us down. They're going to take away our temple where we can worship. They're going to take away our authority that we have. They're going to take away our freedom. And so they look at this moment, and what they say is they're like, look at all these people. They're going after nothing. They're gaining nothing. And what they're saying in that moment is, we have all these like comforts in our life right now. And if you keep acting the way you're acting, you keep elevating Jesus and lifting him up, then we're going to lose all of these comforts in our lives. So they're trying to tell these people, hey, stop doing this. You're going to lose all the comforts that you have. And sadly, what's, what's said here in verse 19 is some of the same language that we even hear in our culture today. We want to protect our comfort. We don't want to have to suffer or, or have self-sacrifice. Like, we struggle with those things. The church I came from in Raleigh, I'll never forget, there was a um, a couple, couple who was nearing the age of retirement, and, and so they had said, you know, we're going to quit our jobs a little bit early, and we're going to just serve in ministry until we can move on to the mission field. And it's interesting, I was preaching one day, and I was talking about the heartbeat of God to take the, the good news of Jesus to the nations, and how he sacrificed and laid down everything, took on humility when he deserved to be praised always in all glory and honor, and how he humbled himself and gave all that he had in order to get the gospel to us, in order that we could be saved. And they came up to me after I taught, and they said, man, it's so encouraging for our hearts to hear this. Because when we decided to re retire a little bit early and go on the mission field, he said, we had friends that told us we were fools. Now, this is the time you got to save up and stock up. You're nearing retirement. Like, don't, don't, don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. Instead, stay where you are, earn that last bit of money, and, 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 and sit on that. And what people were telling them that was breaking their heart, even people who would say that they were followers of Christ, was, look, you're gaining nothing by doing this. You're gaining nothing. But they're like, Ryan, we realize that this is what the world needs. That there are people here, both in our neighborhoods, who are lost and dying without Christ as well as those who are around the world that have never heard of the name of Christ. And we just want to pour out the last years of our life for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we read it here on a page and we're like, oh, these guys said they're gaining nothing. But we need to realize this is the language that's in our world today and sometimes even in our hearts. Sometimes we think, man, I don't want to su sacrifice anything. I'm not gaining anything. It's a sad picture because what you miss is the world when you do that. You miss everything. The end of verse 19, they say they're gaining nothing. And then it responds, look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Which is a, a weird statement, right? It's a weird statement until you realize that the very next verse talks about the nations. It talks about the nations. 
But before we dive into verse 20 and, and the rest of the verses, I want us to pause and just realize this truth that Jesus is the king. This moment, which we call in the church Palm Sunday, is a moment where Jesus is showing and declaring that he is king, both almighty and humble and meek. He is both. So the question, the question for you and the question for me that we have to answer is how do we yield to this kind of king? How do we yield to this kind of king? What it means to yield to this king is that we lay down our preferences and we pick up his. For anyone that you love and respect, you lay down your preferences for him, right? If you fall on the other, other side of this crowd that you hate and you're pulled away from Jesus or maybe apathetic in your heart or cold towards him, then you're not going to lay down your preferences. But to those that say that Jesus is the king, I know he's the king, then you lay down your preferences because you love him. You love him. I mean, even this weekend, I mean, I look at my family. I dearly love my family. And so there's times that I would rather do something and I lay down my preferences because I love them, right? This last weekend, my kids were like, we want to watch this movie. I don't want to watch this movie. I don't care. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a movie. It's a kid's movie. I'm like, I don't care to watch this, but I do. Why? Because I want to love them and serve them. I'm, I'm considering them as more important than myself. My wife loves Mexican food. I don't really care that much for it. But when she says, I want to go get Mexican food, then nine times out of 10, maybe eight times out of the 10, right? We're like, okay, let's go get some Mexican food, right? Because I'm laying down my preferences and picking up her preferences. And in this moment, as we look at Jesus, not as just one that we love, but one who is Lord, we lay down our preferences for his so when we read God's word, we read the king's letter to us, we look at our life and we're like, we desire comfort, we desire peace. And Jesus at times will say, no, I want you to take up comfort through courage. I want you to endure pain and rejection, being canceled for me, for me. He will call us in his word to be, to be bold and to take risks for him. And we're like, no, I don't want to do that. My preference is to stay over here. My little bubble, it's comfortable, right? But when we read God's word, we're like, no. Jesus is king. And the king deserves our allegiance. And so when, when our heart and everything we have desires to do nothing but to save and to stock up our finances, when Jesus commands us to be generous, then we lay down our preferences and trust what God's word says, that he's the king and all the silver and all the gold is his. It's his. And so all of our fear and all the world says, no, 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 no. Save everything you have, hold on to it. And Jesus says, be generous. Pour out into others' lives with your time, your resources, your finances. Can we honor him by yielding to him? And one of the greatest ways for us to yield to him is to live on mission for him. You see, all throughout the Bible, we see God's heartbeat all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that God's desire is that the gospel, the good news of what he has done would go to those who do not know him or those who are hardened in heart towards him, that we would continue to share. And this is his mission. 
I mean, think about this, guys. The God of all creation is here riding on a donkey. Why? So that he could come in and humbly lay down his life to save us. He's gone to all ends. He's laid down his preferences in order to seek and to save that which was lost. He commands us to go on mission for him and to tell the good news of Jesus to others. And this rubs against the grain of our heart. This is hard. This runs against what culture says, right? We'd rather just kind of keep our mouth shut, move on. But the world needs it. Your friend needs it. Your brother or your sister, they need it. Your coworker needs it. Your fellow classmate needs it. I mean, if Jesus would go to such ends and then look at us and say, would you too go? Would you go? Then we yield our preferences to the king. I mean, there's so many different applications that you could make from this, and I encourage you to, to seek this out in your own heart, in your own life. I mean, some of us struggle with identity. Who am I? We're trying to figure out our identity instead of yielding our preferences and what we feel to the one who has created us in his image, the one who has breathed life into us. For many of us, we want to have autonomy when it comes to our sexuality. And God says, no, I've created life to function in such a way, and I created you to function in such a way. Would we bow the knee to our preferences and our feeling to the truth of the king of all creation? The one who comes to us, not in arrogance, not in pride and push us down, but in humility to save us. Will we lay down our preferences and see the king's preferences as far more important than ours? So we see the love-hate relationship found in the king, King Jesus. But then Jesus is going to talk about a love-hate relationship when it comes to our life. When it comes to our life. So the second thing I want us to see is the life that is loved and hated. Now after this amazing moment where they've all praised and they've glorified Jesus and they've laid the palm branches down and they've laid their jackets down and Jesus rode into the city, there's a group of people, the, the Greeks, verse 20 tells us, which is the nations. These are people who aren't Jewish. All these people from the, the nations have come there and they're like, we want to talk to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. What's fascinating in this moment is they come and they say to Philip, hey, can we just meet with Jesus, like to talk to Jesus for a little bit? And Philip's like, I don't know, let me go talk to Andrew. Andrew maybe is a little bit closer to Jesus and let's see, we'll go together and we'll ask Jesus, will you meet with these people, right? So there's like telephone is happening right now. I'm going to talk to him, he's going to talk to you, then we're going to go talk to Jesus. And what's fascinating is how Jesus answers them. Don't forget the question, all right? They say, Hey, can we meet with you, Jesus? And then Jesus answers that question in verse 23. And what does he say? He answers them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, I will say this. If you were reading the Gospel of John from cover to cover, you weren't taking the 24 weeks like we've taken to kind of go through the first several chapters of this book, if you're just sitting down and reading it, verse 23, when Jesus says this, would make you stop. You'd say, wait a second. 
hold on, every other time these people come to Jesus, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. He keeps saying it over and over again in the Gospel of John. And then here these people say, hey, we want to meet with you. We're from the nations. We're here. We want to meet. And he says, all right, now the time has come. Now the time has come. You see, it wasn't just about one small ethnic section of people. It was about the nations. And in this moment, Jesus says, okay, everyone's here. The nations have arrived. The people of Israel are here. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he, he follows up that statement, which is a bold statement that would make you stop, to verse 24 where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, this is a good moment for you and I to put yourself in the shoes of Philip and Andrew. They come up to Jesus and like, hey Jesus, there's these guys that are really curious about you. They love to talk with you. And then Jesus responds, my hour has come. And just like wheat falls from the, the grain, it falls into the ground and dies, and then it grows up and bears much fruit. What, Jesus? <laughs> they just wanted a meeting on the calendar, all right? Like, if I, if I am Philip in this moment, or Andrew, I'm like, are you the grain? Am I the grain? Are we the wheat? Like, who are we, right? Like, that's what's happening in this moment. This is a confusing moment. Like, what are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? What's happening but Jesus, in all of his wisdom, he knows that these nations have gathered together. These Greeks have come here. And this statement that Jesus makes as the grain falls into the ground and dies so it bears fruit, this was a parable that was used in, in, for the Greeks, for their armies. They would use it in their, their training of their soldiers, and they would tell them in their training, they would say, hey, unless you're willing to fall to the ground and die for your country, your country will never be what it's meant to be. They would use this exact parable and say, unless you're like a grain who give your life and die, then, then your country will never be what it's meant to be. And Jesus, in this moment, what he does is he takes this parable that these Greeks would have known, and he doesn't apply it specifically to, to soldiers in this moment. He applies it to two different people. He applies it to himself first. He applies it to himself he talks about himself, how he is going to the cross where he's going to lay down his life in order to save. He's going to give his life in order that he would bear much fruit. That's what he's talking about in this moment. And he's telling these people, hey, Andrew, Philip, go tell them this parable that they're already familiar with, that they've heard soldiers talk about, that you've got to give your life to serve others. And then what you're going to do is you're going to highlight that it's about me. It's about me. And it is about him. Now what's amazing about this moment is it's all pointing to the fact that Jesus would lay down his life. All of this, all this moment is showing that the king would come to die to rescue. You see the, the psalm that you saw earlier, Psalm 118, where they cry out and they praise, Hosanna, God save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's not the end of, chapter, of the chapter 118 in the book of Psalms. No, the very next verse is this. 
says this. God, he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords and bring it up to the, uh, the horns of the altar. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Psalm 118, it's saying, God, would you save us now? Would you save us now? And then the very next verse, it's saying, and this is how you're going to save us. There's going to be a sacrifice. And at this time, and at the time of Psalm, all they knew that they, they had done these sacrifices, and it's since to atone for their sins, the very thing that they should be punished for. And the very next verse says, this is how God is going to save Bring the sacrifice, bring it to the altar, bind it that it would die, that it would give its life in our place. And so there's no happenstance for what's going on here where they quote Psalm 118 as they write in. And the very next verse is the truth that Jesus is pointing to when he says, just like a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. I believe in some sense he's pointing back to Psalm 118 verse 27 where the sacrifice will be bound up taken to the altar and give his life in order to save. So Jesus says, this is about me. This, this parable of a wheat falling to the ground and dying, this is about me. See, what we have to understand today is that Jesus lived so that he could die. And he died so that we could live. Jesus lived so that he could die, and he died so that we could live. And unless Jesus goes to the cross and pays for our sin, then we will all die in our sins. Unless we confess our sins and believe that he is the Lord, the true king who came humbly to ride into Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins, then we will never be saved. But for those of us who are saved by the gracious kind work of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus is going to take this parable right here of the grain and the wheat and not just apply it to himself. He's going to apply it to you and to me if we believe in Jesus. In verse 25, he says this weird statement. He who loves his life is going to lose it. Whoever hates it is going to keep it. What is he talking about right here? He's not just talking about physical life. When he talks about the life here, he's talking about what we have to die to are the disorders of our life. Those preferences we want to keep instead of the preferences of the king. And in this moment, that's what he's doing. He's like, you've got to die to those things. When we look to pleasure or we look to stuff or we look to comfort in this world to satisfy us, Jesus is like, we have to die to those things because that's not where life is found. Life is found in the one who gives life, in the one who is everlasting life. And for us today, it is hard. It is hard to grasp this truth. It's hard to understand what he's talking about here. I got to die to my life and I got to hate my life. Like, what is he talking about? It is so hard for us as Americans to understand the self-sacrifice and dying to ourselves, because our world spends billions of dollars to convince you that this life and being satisfied in this life is everything. Every time we sit down in front of a, a, a screen, our phone, or we sit down in front of a TV screen in our living room. The world is spending millions and millions and billions of dollars to get you to think that this comfort we have in this life and this pleasure we can have right now is everything. And the sad thing is, if you live enough in life, you realize at first those things are fun. 
You get on that, that merry-go-round of life, and you start going up and down, and at first you're excited because you're like, you know what, I'm on the, I'm on the tiger. I, I get to you know, ride the tiger as I go around this merry-go-round. But as soon as you take about 40 laps, about 40 years on this merry-go-round of life of being promised that this will satisfy you, and you realize, man, this, this merry-go-round is not that merry. It doesn't satisfy us. That's what Jesus is trying to get you and I to see today. We have to understand that this life is not going to be ultimately what satisfies us. But when we sacrifice and we die to ourselves to serve others, that's actually where we find our satisfaction. That's where we find our satisfaction. You see, Jesus is not just the king that deserves our allegiance, but the one who's worthy of it. Whatever it costs us to follow Christ, Christ is far greater than that. If it costs us popularity or acceptance or the false sense of security that we think that we have, if we give up all those things, it says nothing when we come to Christ, the only one who can give us the life that quenches our thirsty soul. I love how the former pastor Tim Keller says it. He said it like this, Jesus is the only one, it's the only one, that when you find him, he will satisfy And when you fail him, he will forgive you. You see, the life and the satisfaction that our world offers us gives us the exact opposite of that. You see, when we achieve everything this world has to offer, we're dissatisfied. And when we fail, our world will cancel you. But Jesus, Jesus is the only one that when you find him, he will satisfy. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. He's worth whatever the cost. He's worthy of it. In the 1950s, there was a man named Jim Elliott, um, along with four other friends from Wheaton College. They headed to Ecuador to reach um, an unreached people group with the gospel. And these people were ruthless people. Um, They were known for for murdering and killing people, so much so that the government had just kind of like given them this area. They're like, you guys just live there in the, uh, the jungle and stay away from us and, and we'll be good. They just stopped even trying to communicate with them. But Jim Elliott and his friends said, you know what, we're going to go to those people and we're going to take the good news of Jesus Christ to them, the one who came for us. And years before he actually went on the mission field, uh, Elliott started to, to write and journal. And he wrote a lot of profound things in, in this journal, but one of the things he said And his journal was this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, or give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Say it one more time. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And what he's doing is basically taking exactly what Jesus said in this, this sentence, in this this passage and applying it to himself. I can't keep my life ultimately. So I will give what I can't keep to gain which I, that I cannot lose. So what he did is he and his friends went down there and they shared the gospel with these people. Those people in Ecuador murdered him, killed him. He gave his life in order to take the good news to others who had not known it. And the amazing part of that story is not that he went and he died and gave his life. That's not ultimately the amazing part of that story. 
But a few years later, these men who died there, their wives came to share the gospel with these same people. They went down there to tell them the good news. And like, if, they, if it costs us our life as well, then we'll give our lives. But these people have to know that Jesus is the Lord. But that isn't even the, the most amazing part of that story. They go down there and they share the gospel with these people. And these people respond and believe. And I met this guy who says, I'm the one. I'm the one who murdered this man. I'm, I murdered Jim Elliott. I remember killing him. And now he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And he even adopted Jim Elliott's son as his own. That's an amazing story. That's what the gospel does. That's what giving your life so that others would hear and believe. That's exactly what Christ has done. And so church family, that's a call for us to rally behind the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ to go and to take the good news to those who have not heard. And for those of you that haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, there's good news waiting for you here today in Jesus Christ. So would you believe in him? Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son to do what we couldn't do. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't get out of the situation that we were in. We couldn't work our way up, even if that was our preference. We couldn't come to the king with all of our good works. So the king came for us and live the life of good works so that we could be saved. And that good news has traveled from generation to generation to generation to even here today. And so may we as believers be faithful to sacrifice our lives, to at some points even what others would say, man, you must hate your life to give up all these things. May it really be our heart of love for you that drives us to do these things. And Lord, I ask that as we do this and we share this good news that we would see many come to you, not because of our eloquent words, but because of the power of your spirit. For others of us here, we have to see the truth and the reality. It's not an accident you're here today. It's not an accident that you would hear the good news of Jesus, how he humbly came to Hosanna to save now. He'll save now in this moment if you would come to him. So I want to give you a moment. If that's you right now, you need to come to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a moment right now to just pray to him. And then after service, I want you to, to take a step forward, to be bold, to talk to somebody at Next Steps, to tell them that step of faith, or to ask those questions, or to come and talk to one of our pastors afterwards. We want to celebrate with you in that. We want to help you to get involved with this, this mission, to take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations through the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. So respond to the gospel today. Christ, one of the ways we're going to respond is we're going to sing to you. We're going to pray to you. We're going to give to you. Because the gospel demands response. And so we respond. And so I'd say now, if you don't know Jesus, use this moment of silence right now to pray and ask for him to save you. For those of you that know Jesus, would you take a moment right now to pray for someone who you know does not know Christ, that they would come to know him and love him. Pray now. to you all of our life 
for your glory and ultimately our good. And Lord, right now we sing, we give, we pray as we respond to the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.